So we have now arrived at the final lesson as it pertains to God's most holy providence. Over the last few weeks, we've spent time going over this important doctrine of God's providence, something that I truly do believe now more than ever is so important for us to understand and really, really grasp. We live in a world and in a time where people don't look at the big picture. People don't understand or try to discern the hand of God in every aspect of life. And as a result, you see the fruit of it. You see the result of it. Anxiety, anxiousness, questions, fear. When understanding providence helps to relieve and alleviate all of that. So in God's providence, we've gone over this important doctrine. And over the last few weeks, we dove into a lot of the different aspects. We talked about how important providence was. We discussed pitfalls to avoid. We dove into the different elements of God's providence, his preservation, his government, and his divine concurrence. And there's, there was many more things that I certainly wanted to talk about as it pertains to God's providence, but I wanted to take this final lesson to come back to what we started teaching on two weeks ago, the last time I was behind this pulpit, which was divine concurrence, and really make sure that I helped you to understand this particular element as this element more so than divine government and divine preservation is hard for a lot of people to really reconcile and, and truly grasp and understand. So it is my hope and prayer today that as we go into divine concurrence again, we look at a final part that I didn't get into last week that I am bringing some clarity and some understanding as it pertains to this. But before we get into it, just by way of review, our confession of faith in chapter 5, section 1, defines providence in this way. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Now, as I mentioned, within this understanding of divine providence, there are three elements. You have divine preservation, which if you recall, was God's continuous work whereby he sustains and upholds all created things. Our God preserves all things. He doesn't just create it. He also sustains and upholds it. Then we have the second element, which is divine government, which was that aspect of God's providence whereby in order to ensure that his decree is accomplished, he exercises complete authority over all creation by directing and guiding all their actions towards his end goal. Never forget what we learned when Jason taught on God's eternal decree. There is an eternal plan that God has in mind. And in God's divine government, he's directing all things towards that end goal. And then that brings us now to the final point, divine concurrence, which deals now, if, if divine government dealt in the macro level, divine concurrence deals, as John Frame puts it, in the micro level. 
And if you recall, two weeks ago, we defined it in this way. It was that work of God by which he cooperates with all his creatures and causes them to act precisely as they do. Proverbs 16 verse 9 says, The mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And as we looked at divine concurrence two weeks ago, one of the things that we wanted to avoid was this idea or understanding because God directs our steps that somehow, therefore, that means that we are puppets. We are robots. We have no control over the actions that we're doing. We're just sitting here mindless. And God is directing things. And then what did we say? If you recall, we mentioned that God causes all things to fall into place. How? By means of secondary causes. And in looking at secondary causes, we saw how he does that either necessarily, which means based on the nature of the thing. Just to to jog your memory, if you recall God creating the sun, the sun by its nature gives off heat. Then we saw he also caused things to fall through secondary causes freely, which means without any forced coercion. And then contingently, which means from our vantage point, things that may appear random, so to speak. And then in looking at this and understanding that God causes things to fall by means of secondary causes, I left you with this question. Because we all know that as humans, as men, we are not angels. And many times we do fall into sin. So the question that I left last Lord's Day was, well, what does that mean in regards to the sinful actions of men? What's God's providence in regards to that? And the verse that I left to have you thinking about for two weeks was Proverbs 16, verse 4. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. So how are you to understand that? How does that align with the providence of God? Well, this is what our confession states in chapter 5, section 4. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that it extended itself even to the first fall and all other sins of angels and men. And that not by a bare permission, but such as hath joined with it a most wise and powerful bounding and otherwise ordering and governing of them in a manifold dispensation to his own holy ends. So our confession is saying in a very well way that God's providence does even extend to the sinful actions of men. Again, Proverbs 16, verse 4, the Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. And then we see in passages like 1 Corinthians chapter, or excuse me, 1 Kings chapter 22, Verses 19 through 23. One of those passages that I think sometimes as Christians we deep down sometimes wish probably wasn't in the Bible because of the difficulty of it. But it is in the Bible. And if you remember what I said last, last oh, two weeks ago, there's some things that are easy to understand and grasp 
like eating a Krispy Kreme donut. And there are some things, some passages that are like beef jerky. Take some chewing to really grasp and understand. And this is definitely one of those passages. Because we read in 1 Kings 22, starting in verse 19. Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. The Lord said, who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this, while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. The Lord said to him, how? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, you are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets, and the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. Now, some people might say, well, JP, that's the Old Testament. You know, in the Old Testament, God was a little mean. You know, he had a little bit of a temper. But that's not the God that we see in the New Testament. We'll turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11. Because in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11, we hear, For this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence, so that they will believe what is false. So now it's not just an Old Testament thing. It's a Bible thing. And the scriptures are certainly very clear in regards to that. Yes, God's providence does even extend in this area, in the sinful actions of men. And as our divine said, not just by a bare permission, but he has indeed joined with it a most wise, listen to how the divines say it, most wise and powerful bounding and otherwise ordering and governing of them to his holy end. So it's not a controlling just in and of itself because sin somehow is good, but for a specific purpose and reason. Now, when us seeing passages like we just read in 1 Kings 22 and 2 Thessalonians, Chapter two, let's not forget what we've talked about before regarding secondary causes, because this is very important to understand, and which is why I wanted to make sure before diving into this, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Because while God may be directing the, act, the sinful actions of men, he is not the one directly committing those sinful acts or forcing men to commit those acts against their will. Now, this is very important to understand because what tends to happen when we start looking at things like that is people start making foolish remarks, attributing sin, authorship of sin to God. And we have to understand that idea and concept of secondary causes so as not to do that. An example of this, and I love that through the inspiration certainly of the Holy Spirit that this is in the scriptures. Second Samuel chapter 24, verse one, we read this. Now the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and it incited David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. Now, obviously, at face value, you read that verse, and it doesn't seem like it's something that's sinful. But if you go down to verse 10, you read this. Now, David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. 
So then we see David doing something, being incited, doing something that he realizes was sin. Was God to blame for that? Well, fortunately, this isn't the only part where this account is given. Because if you look in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1, you read this, the same account, but hear how it's written. Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So when you look at this passage in light of what we read before, what you see is God is the ultimate cause, but Satan as the immediate cause, the means by which the actual person who tempted David. Again, why I say it's so important that we don't ignore secondary causes when we read passages like this or even passages before like 1 Kings. Because even in that passage in 1 Kings 22, if you notice, it wasn't God himself that was, the, that was inciting the lie itself. Now, all that being said, if God's providence even extends to sinful actions, well then, does that alleviate our responsibility? This is another objection, another way that people try to excuse their own sins. Well, who can stop the will of God? If God's providence so extends even to this, then I'm free, right? I'm not gonna get in trouble. I'm just doing what God ordained for me to do, right? Not even close. Something to keep in mind as we understand all of this. It's the matter of intent. Because see, intent matters as it pertains to sin and responsibility. I want you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah. And we're going to read Isaiah chapter 10. Now I've read this section before as it pertains to Assyria or the king of Assyria. But we're going to read the first 19 verses because I want you to hear all of this in context. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 10, the first 19 verses, this is what we read. Woe to those who enact evil statutes and to those who constantly record unjust decisions, so as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor of my people of their rights, so that widows may be their spoil and that they may plunder the orphans. Now, what will you do in the day of punishment and in the devastation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the captives or fall among the slain. In spite of all of this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. Yet it does not so intend nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather it is its purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations. For it says, are not my princes all kings? Is not Calno like Harkamish or Hamath like Arpad or Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images 
just as I have done to Samaria and her idols. So it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. For he has said, by the power of my hand and by my wisdom I did this, for I have understanding and I removed the boundaries of the peoples and plundered their treasuries. And like a mighty man, I brought down their inhabitants and my hand reached to the riches of the peoples like a nest. And as one gathers abandoned eggs, I gathered all the earth. And there was not one that flapped its wings or opened its beak or chirped. Is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? That would be like a club wielding those who lift it, or like a rod lifting him who is not wood. Therefore, the Lord, the God of hosts, will send a wasting disease among his stout warriors. And under his glory, a fire will be kindled like a burning flame. And the light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame. And it will burn and devour his thorns and his briars in a single day. And he will destroy the glory of his forest and of his fruitful garden, both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away. And the rest of the trees of his forest will be so small in number that a child could write them down. So in this passage, there are two things that are clear. One, God ordained Assyria to plunder Israel. And two, God will punish Assyria for it. It is clear. Again, look at the passage that God is saying that he will be using Assyria to punish Israel. But we also see that Assyria wanted to destroy Israel and plunder it. So it's interesting. You see God's will being done through the free act of Assyria. God did not have to coerce Assyria to do anything. Yet they accomplished God's plan. Even though they are accomplishing God's plan, God is still going to punish them. Why? How, is, how can that be? Well, what was their reason for doing what they did? Was there some holy end that they themselves were seeking? No, they were seeking their own glory. Their intent was wickedness, not the glory of God. When it comes to whether something is sinful, intent matters. Joseph's brothers did accomplish God's purposes, but their intent was not to glorify God, but to harm Joseph. Judas Iscariot accomplished God's purpose, but his intent was not to secure our redemption, but to kill Jesus. So let's go back to the confession, because there was one little part that I left out on purpose to highlight here in chapter five, section four. So let's read it again. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that it extended itself even to the first fall and all other sins of angels and men. And that not by a bare permission, but such as hath joined with it a most wise and powerful bounding and otherwise ordering and governing of them in a manifold dispensation to his own holy ends. Yet so, as the sinfulness thereof proceedeth only from the creature and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of 
sin. The divine state that the sinfulness of an act proceeds from men, only from the creature, not from God. This is so important to understand so that we don't make blasphemous claims like God is the author of sin. We read in the book of James, chapter 1, verses 13 through 17, this, let no one say when he's being tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted, how? When he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So you see here, James is making it very, very clear who the responsible party is as it pertains to sin. It's the person who commits the sin. The inward desire to commit sin comes from our inward corruption and not from God. Let me give you an example that I hope clarifies this even more. Imagine that you were walking down a busy sidewalk and there was a lady in front of you and she drops her purse. And you notice the purse and you decide to pick up the purse. Now you have one of two options. You can return the purse or you can keep it. If you keep the purse, obviously that's stealing. You violated the Eighth Commandment. But it would be foolish for you to say, well, God tempted me to steal the purse by making the purse fall in front of me. The desire to steal came from you. What makes an act ultimately sinful comes from the inner man. Did God ordain the purse to fall and you to pick up the purse? Yes, he did. But what was the motivating influence that moved you to pick up the purse? It was your sinful desire to steal. Not only that, but it is man that is subject to the law of God. Man is accountable to God. Sin is any lack of conformity or transgression of God's law. God gives us his law to follow. God, on the other hand, is accountable to no one. He doesn't have to obey or answer himself to anyone. Francis Turretin in his Institutes of Elenctic Theology, puts it this way. The will, as a physical agent, is the physical cause of the act. But as a moral agent, the will is the moral cause of the wickedness, not simply because it produces the act, but because it produces such an act against the law to which man is subject. So Turretin is stating that our will is the moral cause of the wickedness, not only because it produces the act, but because it produces an act against God's law, which we are subject to. See, oftentimes when a person tries to attribute authorship of sin to God, quite honestly, they're thinking too humanly of God. They forget that the law of God, that the law that God subject man to is not something that God is subject to. I mean, Let's think through each of the commandments together. And you tell me which one of the commandments God could actually violate. Commandment one, thou shalt have no other gods before me. God is God. 
God has no, he knows that there's no other gods. He alone is God. That's an impossibility for God to violate. Commandment two, thou shalt not make unto me any graven image or any likeness of anything as in heaven above and the earth beneath, so on and so forth. You know the second commandment and it deals with worship. Who is worship made towards? God. So again, an impossibility for God to violate. Commandment three, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. It is God's name that is being lifted up. His word, his words, his title. So again, directed towards him, an impossibility for him to violate. The fourth commandment regarding the Sabbath. Whose day is it? The Lord's day. Who's the day for? God. An impossibility for God to violate. Let's look at the fifth commandment. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Who is God's superior? Who is God's equal? No one. Now, even though we are inferior, obviously, to God, we can't judge God's treatment of us as his inferior with the same measure that we would a human superior to a human inferior, because guess what? God is not a human. Commandment six, thou shalt not kill. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What do every sinner deserve? What does every sinner deserve? Death. So if we die at the hands of God, is it sin? No, it is what we deserve. The seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. God knows us. He created us. He knows us more intimately than we even know ourselves. And he has no passions like us that can get debased. So this is an impossibility for God. Commandment eight, thou shalt not steal. God owns everything. He can't steal what he already owns. Commandment nine, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Scriptures are very clear. God cannot lie. Unless you want to call God a liar, be my guest. But I would not do that if I were you. And the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. What does man have that God can covet? God, again, owns everything. So just looking through the 10 commandments makes it so clear it's impossible for God to violate any of these commandments. So therefore, it is impossible for God to be the author of sin. 1 John 2, verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from where? The world. So again, God cannot be the author of sin. He can't violate these laws. Now, this raises a question. Well, God so hates sin, and it, as the scriptures are so clear that he does, and he's not the approver or author of sin, well, then why does he control it? Now, to us, it seems so incompatible with God's holiness that he should control something as vile as sin. So what's the deal? Why does he do it? Well, if you look at a couple of passages in the book of Romans, let's start first with Romans chapter 9, verses 22 and 23, and then we'll pivot and go to Romans chapter 11. In Romans 9, verses 22 and 23, we read this. What if God, 
although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much, much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. And then if we look at Romans chapter 11, and I want you to read third, verses 30 through 34, and we read this. For just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Now, to fully grasp this section, you do need to read the entire chapter of Romans 11. And I would encourage you to do so. Because see, in this chapter, Paul is explaining how God used the hardening of Israel to bring about salvation to the Gentiles. Any look through the Gospels, especially the Gospel of Matthew, is going to highlight this fact. So God's purpose was to bring about the salvation of the Gentiles. And he used the stubbornness of the Jews and their unwillingness to embrace Christ as a means to bring in the Gentiles. We also see how God shut all in disobedience, Jew and Gentile, in order to extend mercy to all. So think about this. If God is truly a merciful God and God desires that attribute of him to be glorified along with all his other attributes, how can this be done without us falling into sin? How can we praise God for his mercy and not punishing us as we deserve if we're sinless? How can God be glorified in his justice if there is no wrong to punish? If you heard that a person, let's call him Tito, was a very strong person, the strongest man in the world, you might believe that statement without ever having to see Tito demonstrate his strength. But if you never see Tito do anything utilizing strength, you might start to question if Tito was really strong. In fact, if you saw Tito avoid ever using his strength, you might start to think that whoever told you that Tito was strong is either lying or probably misinformed. See, it's not until you actually witness him using his strength that you truly grasp and appreciate how strong he really is. And in the same way, it's not until we witness God's displaying his mercy on those who deserve death that we can truly and fully appreciate and praise God as he desires. So let me be clear. God's control over sin isn't so that sin can be glorified, but so that God can be glorified. He is using that to bring about a higher end purpose. That's why Paul, in contemplating that in Romans 11, says, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. God controls sin, not to say that sin is good, but to make clear that he is good. He is just, he is holy, he is wise, and he alone is merciful. Now, with that in mind, understanding the big picture as to why God would control even sin Let's look at two quick sub-reasons 
that the divines also give in this section, in sections five and six. In section five, we read this. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts to chastise them for their former sins or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts that they may be humbled and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other just and holy ends. The divines are pointing out in this section the fact that God oftentimes allows a believer to fall into sin, not for them to indulge in, but for their eyes to be open to the remaining corruption that they still must mortify. See, for the believer, sometimes it takes us dealing with the consequences of our foolishness to realize how foolish we really are. Now, for those of us who have children, this shouldn't be a, a, a difficult concept to grasp. I mean, think about it. How often do you warn, especially when your kids were little, do you warn them, don't touch the stove, don't leave your toys lying around? And they don't listen. They continue to leave, you know, to leave their toys all over the house or inch closer and closer to the stove. Now, if they continue to be hard-headed, what will undoubtedly happen? One day, you're going to hear your child running to you crying, either because they can't find their favorite toy or they burned their hand on the stove. To which point, if that happens, you can say, well, didn't I warn you not to do that? Didn't I tell you not to leave your favorite toy just lying around? Chances are, once they see the consequences of their foolish and rebellious actions, they probably won't make the same mistake again. Psalm 119, verses 67 and 71. You see David saying, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. And then we see the other side of this. For those who are not the elect, but for those who are the reprobate. We see the divine saying in section six, as for those wicked and ungodly men whom God as a righteous judge for former sins doth blind and harden, from them he not only withholdeth his grace, whereby they might have been enlightened in their understandings and wrought upon in their hearts, but sometimes also withdraws the gifts which they had and exposes them to such objects as their corruption makes occasion of sin. And withal gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world and the power of Satan, whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves even under the means which God uses for the softening of others. So now you see the flip side of this, where God will also allow sin to overcome an unbeliever or a person making a false profession so as to condemn them and bring them into judgment. Psalm 81, verse 11 through 12. But my people did not listen to my voice, and Israel did not obey me. So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. And then you see in 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. 
and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. And then we all know, I don't have time to read it, but in Romans chapter one, God giving them over in their sin. So we see this aspect where God will utilize sin to condemn, to further ensure the condemnation of the wicked. Now, as I mentioned, this idea of God's divine concurrence, it's a pretty weighty doctrine. And it's something that I wanted to make sure I was explaining very carefully. There were other things that I wanted to talk about when in this entire lesson of divine providence. I wanted to get into miracles and different things like that, but in God's providence, that's not the case. Now, fortunately, I'm young enough to where I'm sure we'll probably be teaching on this again. So I'm sure in a future time, we'll get more into the nitty gritty, but I'm gonna leave it here for right now. And I wanna make point that, see, we can't ignore the truth of the scripture because it's uncomfortable, but we also can't recklessly explain this doctrine. There is so much regarding God's providence that ought to make us confident in him and his providence and promises. But there is also much regarding God's providence that ought to humble us. God, in his holy providence, so preserves, governs, and controls all things that his control even extends to all of our actions. Now, he does so by secondary causes, so that it cannot be claimed that he is the author of sin and that we are not responsible for our actions. And as we just saw, even sin is under the providential control of God, but not as an end in and of itself. Sin also serves to secure God's most holy end. See, our God is a God who is, has a most wise, holy, just, and glorious end goal in mind that he is working all things toward. His holy providence over all things is what ensures that his beautiful plan comes to place as he intends. So there you have it. This is God's holy providence. God does truly govern and control and preserve all things, all creatures, all their actions for his own glory. Now, in understanding this truth and this fact, let that be an encouragement to you as you live your life. Let that motivate you as you live your life to do what God calls you to do based on his word. You don't need to worry about things beyond your control because we've just read here and in the last few weeks that God is in control of all things. All you gotta do is what God tells you to do in his word, his duties, his obligations. Your job isn't to pry into the secret things of God and try to figure out things that he purposefully withheld from you to understand, like Job tried to do, and God corrected him for that. Your job is to understand that God is indeed in control of all things and trust him and then submit to what God calls us to do. And that's it. Well, this concludes our lesson as it pertains to God's most holy providence.